Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Owen Moulton, who is the business transformation and digital thought leader for Glencore. Um, Owen is a mine engineer by background and has a long history in the industry in various roles, including and, uh, and, and within corporate strategy, operational excellence, delivery, directorship and uh, shareholder negotiations. So, we're getting Owen on this podcast to talk about various topics, um, including Glen- what Glencore have been doing um, around digital and transformation. Um, and also he's an active CSM Illumini member um, and wondering how technology is going to assist them, plus many more things um, we're going to talk about. So I'd like to uh, welcome Owen to the podcast. How are you doing, Owen? I'm good. Thanks, Rob. Really nice to be here. Yeah, appreciate your time as well. Um, I imagine most of our audience know you or have heard of you, um, but for those that don't know you, um, wondered if you can give us a, a brief background um, of your history uh, from, say, back in the day um, for, for graduation and how you got into mining to sort of present day. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, so, as you mentioned, yeah, a proud CSM uh, alumni member and, and graduate. In fact, uh, Graduated twice from from Camborne, actually, undergrad and postgrad. But um, yeah, and a past president. So happy to be part of the uh, the group that you've had on as past presidents as well. Um, so yeah, graduated out of Camborne, and then initially went into civils, into construction work, um, building a couple of office blocks for uh, for Credit Suisse over in Channel Islands. Um, and then I, I'd sort of had a, a, a eureka moment. That I thought it was at least, and went into music. And uh, started a band or joined a band actually that we got we got sort of signed up to an agency in London and played some some tours and all across the UK for a year or so and recorded an album or two and um, kind of got a bit bored of that in the end um, it was monotonous and you know you got twenty five or thirty songs you play six days a week and it's like wow okay this is it nah I, I wasn't up for that so <laughs> unless know, I was, and I, I suppose unless you made it really big. Unless you made it to yeah, the pops number know. one, and you know, you're this <laughs> I big, probably big. could have sacrificed a, a bit of boredom for that. I, I'd say, yeah, and and certainly some friends and and family members actually that are sort of still or have been in the music industry a lot longer than I was, and just just by my, my dad sort of uh, married into a, a big musical family, but um, when my him and my mum split up, but uh, yeah, so. I, I know I'd still see what it could have been, but I, you know you've got to be super lucky and kind of know people as well as ta- as having a bit of talent and and um, yeah, it was I, I probably wasn't cut out for it to be honest because you really had to have a singular drive to stay in it and and put up with all the other personalities that can happen in music, and I. I just didn't, and 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 in the end, uh, you know, I was doing other jobs during the day, like spot welding and sandblasting and cutting cutting sheet metal with lasers, you know, just just because I 
didn't want to be locked in a room all day playing music. So, so I got out of that, and and I and then I I took a job uh, full time then as a drill supervisor for a couple of geotech companies in London, and um, and then went to Twickenham for a game, uh, the Heineken Cup final, I think it was, with a friend, and happened to be chatting to somebody in the, in the Guinness tent at half time who turned out to be Tony Williams, who's the ex executive chairman of Dragon Capital Holdings in London. And um, he's, yeah, still a, a contact of mine. And, and uh, he, um, two weeks later after meeting him, we, we did a deal and I went to Mexico and uh, started working for, for one of the companies he was building there, um, building some mines. And um, it was some exploration and some, some mine development and ramp up. Um, so that was great, you know, on the tools and the ground, um, you know, in the shaft, putting in rock bolts by day and then writing up the report and trying to, trying to uh, write the, the, the investor relations reports to send back to, to London so they could raise money. So, yeah, I got a lot of good exposure to how a junior mining world works like that. Um, and so always appreciative of the opportunity that Tony gave me there and, and Jim and worked with some really great guys there. And then um, I transitioned into consulting after that um, with Wardrop um, Engineering, who then got bought by Tetratech. And I found myself back in Mexico, actually building up their, their business development strategy for the Mexican division. Um, and that was going well, but it was, it was kind of, a, a, the, the time in Mexico was one of, there was higher security levels and, and certainly the, the, um, the influence of, of the, the geopolitical system in the US was, it was and Mexico was, was challenging for, for mineral extraction licenses and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it didn't really make sense to keep the offices in Tetratech and they started transitioning things back to, to uh, Pasadena and Tucson. Um, and then I got approached to, to join the team in Barrick in Saudi Arabia well, it was actually Equinox at the time, and then Barak bought Equinox to build up the Jabal Said mine uh, into ramp up and into production there. So I joined as the senior senior planning manager and alternative tech services uh, superintendent, and um, yeah, and got that mine up and running and and, um, and delivering um, from the first stops, um, and was involved with with some of the uh, infrastructure developments on the surface as well, and, and managing the contractor, the infrastructure contractor, and doing a, a scope one, uh, uh, load one, open pit sort of pre-feasibility studies. Um, and then the mine kind of got shut by the Saudi government because a few licenses were not sort of up to scratch. So um, yeah, that, that took a bit, of a, a bit of a hit on the workforce. And, and then I found that there was a, an opportunity to join ArcelorMittal into the corporate world. So I started heading up their um, mine planning management for their underground portfolio. Um, and uh, that transitioned into to, to working with the operational risk management team for the, for the group, the steel group, um, on the mining portfolio and leading some of their tailings task force work as well. Um, and then in Glencore, I moved into Glencore from that role um, on the basis of, of some conversations I was having actually at the Melbourne Mining Club dinner in Lords, um, And I just was chatting to somebody at the dinner about some of the things we were trying to do in Aslamitsa, but we were finding challenging. And then a year later, I got the call to say that the, they'd had an approval to build a business transformation team in Glencore and that, um, that I'd been selected as somebody that they could 
they'd like to build that team with. So, um, so I took the opportunity to to go and work for Glencore. Um, moved to moved the family to Switzerland and and um, started to to get involved there. Um, we've subsequently moved back to the UK, obviously still with Glencore. But um, yeah, I mean part of the part of the the reason for that was was the the, the cultural side of of Switzerland versus the UK and my wife being Latin American and it wasn't. We didn't settle as well as we hoped, but um, the job was still great, and, and, and that's why we've stayed stayed with Glencore, even though we've changed changed positions, locations. So yeah, a, a lucky trajectory, definitely, and, and certainly it's um, it's been a little bit of who I knew rather than what I knew in some ways, um, but but always able to say yes to the opportunities that came my way, which has always been um, part of my my formula, I suppose, of why why I've done the things I've done. Yeah. Um, obviously, I've spoken to you a few times in the past, um, and you seem very passionate about mining. Where does your passion come from? Um, well, I was born in the Welsh coal fields in southwest coal fields in, in Mardi, um, which is at the top of the Randavach. Um, my dad was the chaplain of that whole area, or the, 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 the Anglican sort of priest of that whole parish, and, and the, the the colliery was at the end of our road and, and you know, um, so we were connected to a sort of mining environment from, from day dot, but growing up as a child in the 80s in South Wales, early 90s come around and you sort of get, you're a bit more aware of things and, and you know, going down the pit was, wasn't really an option. Mardi was the second last colliery to close in 97, um, other than, um, than Tower Colliery, which was stayed open, but that was it, you know, it was depressed area. And so it really didn't seem well, like it, it was... Didn't, I was going to say, didn't that put you off mining at all <laughs> during that time? Oh, because the people were amazing. That like, okay. you know, our house burnt down in the early, in the mid eighties, just the domestic accident. And the whole town just rallied around us. We, you know, we lived in the bottom of the post office for a year as a family. And it was just that whole mining sort of camaraderie just came together. And and I think that stayed stayed with with me and, and my brother. I mean, we were both in mining, and, and we both went to Camborne. And so I think that that's that's what's driven it. But it, it never was a conscious decision until I got to applying for university, and I just applied for I think all six undergrad courses at Camborne because I just fell in love with the place when I went down there for a field trip, doing my A levels, and and that was it. I was like, I don't want to do anything else. This is this is everything. I can travel. I can learn a language. I get to solve all of these big problems. You, you get to, to work in this, this and not unknown environment, but it was like mysterious to some. And, and I, I just, I, all of that was appealing to me. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's where it came from. Yeah. And with your sort of passion and motivation, has that changed from back, back then when you got into the industry to now? And if so, what things what things have changed and how how do, i suppose and also how do you keep yourself motivated and and interested in this industry well look every day is, is is kind of different in mining and i think that's one thing that keeps you interested definitely you know whether you're in even in the corporate world versus the you know down in down in 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 the shaft or in on the drives um the challenges that you have keep you motivated i think most of the time um the teams and the people that you get to work with can can certainly um, 
you know, provide you with the motivation to succeed just for them. I think the, the teamwork and the camaraderie, it's a bit like being in a sports team, I suppose. You, you feel like you have to deliver for, for the rest of the team. Um, so that keeps my passion, I'd say, fresh in that space of, of delivery and, and execution. But I'd say my, my passion for the future of mining has changed definitely since becoming a family man and a parent, um, parent of girls and, and one boy, but girls first. Definitely has changed my perspective on what the industry should and could be doing and, and how, what I think I can influence in the industry. Um, yeah, that's just, I've definitely changed my perspective there now, yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're with Glencore. So I just wondered if you can um, tell us more about your role um, and some of the changes and successes that you've uh, experienced. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, Glencore, the business transformation team is quite, was kind of new when, um, when I first started back in um, 2017. And it's a team that was sort of approved through the finance division, but it was it was set up to try and um, harmonize the knowledge and the skill sets and experiences that we've got around not just digital transformation, but transformation and general technology adoption um, to, to maximize the value of the, the, the portfolio of Glencore um, and start to, to bring the centers of excellence or pockets of excellence that we've got around different, different change management strategies, different technology adoptions, um, and, and, and bring them into a more unified problem statement and then solution statement as well. Um, so there's been a number of areas where I think we've had a lot of uh, collaboration, uh, vehicle interaction, and, and, and certainly what we've done in Glencore and that's translated into, into Immerse, the, the uh, Earth Moving Equipment uh, Safety Roundtable team. Um, and, and that collaboration with, with some of the other majors in that, um, the work that, we, that we've then done with the initiatives for cleaner, safer vehicles with the ICMM has all spurred from, I think, the, the collective collaboration inside Glencore that, that we, I certainly didn't start, but it was, all, it was already there. But certainly we've, we've harnessed that as best we can and, and look to improve on that every day. Um, and then... Yeah, knowledge sharing and the, the, the communities of practice to, to, to find the solutions that, that can meet the problems that we are collectively having um, and are now recognizing that, you know, mining in hard rock nickel underground or, you know, open pit um, zinc or open pit copper, until you get to a point of geochemistry where there's some fundamental differences most of the other challenges are actually relatively similar and you can articulate a problem statement to a for a solution provision the same and and that's part of what we're trying to um, to recognize and it's not something that we're centralizing in any way that the culture of Glencore is very much federated in the sense that the divisions have their own leadership their own strategies their own roadmaps and we're nimble because of that. I think that's that is an added bonus compared to some of the other majors. But it does mean there are times when we overlap or potentially um, double up on resources or problem solving um, because we haven't been able to share some of those experiences in the past. So that's that's the real transformation that we're looking to do. Um, but some technical stuff I've been involved in, which has been quite quite successful, has been some of the the 
scenario planning and strategic parametric scheduling in the sort of in the mind planning space and the, the ability to do a lot more strategizing rather than cl clicking buttons to get to the end of the schedule and produce it, get the budget approved and then go to the next, the next cycle. Um, and refining that process through the adoption of digital technology is, I would say, has been an ongoing, an ongoing value creation piece of work, which is which is which has been developed in inside the team that I'm in as well. So yeah. Um, okay. And if someone wants to get into the um, digital and transfer transformation um, area discipline, um, what kind of skills do they need? And also, do you uh, do you say the the actual group that a uh, group of people in that space do they do you need people that generate more ideas or is it people that um, sort of execute on those ideas? What is there a need for both? Either I think the, the, it's always a question of balance. You know whether you're dieting to keep your healthy body or whether you're you know, trying to find um, solutions to significant complex problems. There's a balance of, 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 you know, execution versus versus innovation. Um, and for me, I would say, um, no technology started from nothing. So the innovation piece is part of the drive to keep improving or keep um, ch not changing, but optimizing, enriching the way that we do things. Uh, fundamentally, mining cycles, mining activities haven't really changed, I suppose. They've been mechanized, but we still drill and blast, you know, much like we did when we were using dynamite. In some ways, the, the, the chemistry, the technology to do that activity has changed and made it more efficient, but the fundamentals are still there, you know. So cutting technologies are obviously coming around the corner, but and that's an innovation. But So I wouldn't say we, we're bereft of ideas in the mining industry at all but certainly some of the execution is i would say is is more important at this stage some of the skill sets that we need for that i think might come from outside the industry might come from other sectors and certainly there's there should be a crossover in many areas um you know the execution of, of autonomous flying vehicles autonomous road vehicles autonomous process control even um not just autonomy but also you know the data analytics and and taking value from data is a key component i think to where mining is going um we're we're all many people have said this i'm sure in, in on the calls and, and in the industry we're data rich and information poor and and so those skill sets i'd say are part as becoming more and more part of a traditional mining person's skill set and and a lot more of the work that we're doing in Glencore in some of our divisions is to augment the skill sets of a metallurgist or a mining engineer or, or a geochemist or a geologist with computer scripting skills, um, Python or C++ or um, any of those stuff and getting into that methodology to refine our ability to get information quicker from our data sets and using bigger data sets because technology has allowed us to do that um, has, has spurred that on. So, but I think the ideas piece is still valid. It needs to come into our industry and still be generated. So, you know, there's probably every driller in the world has got an idea of how to do things better in the day. Um, and it's more a question of how do they get that to a point where they can pitch it and be understood quickly enough for the sponsor to move forward and support them. 
Um, and I, I always used to say when I was in operations, get you've got to get out of the office and down to the shop floor at least you know once a week. If you can't do it every shift, get to shift change, get down there once a week and live the live the whole shift for a week as a mind planner, so that you can make your plans fit what they need underground. You know, if you're not chamfering off a corner for the visibility to be as good as it can be for your loader operator, then then why are you trying to be an engineer? Because that's just design. It's not engineering. You're not solving problems. You're creating problems in that space. And and so there's got to be a connection to the people that have to live your your solution and and understand why you're doing that solution to 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 the idea and where it came from in the first place. Um, so you've got to be a good person. You've got a good a good pe people person. Um, so the commu communication and 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 um, strategic sort of knowledge is not always hand in hand, but those would be key skill sets to take forward with all of the other foundational technologies, uh, foundational experience, sorry, like mining engineering, geology, and so on, which you know, a few of our between as, as, as all these different places close and so on, or stop stop offering these skill sets. Um, we, we will be looking at, 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 a, at a, a gap in that space, but we'll fill it with other things. Um, we'll fill it with with computer science people. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean that that's going to be good for the industry, but that's how it's going to happen this, at this early stage, I'd say. Yeah. Around ideas, if there was people out on site and they've got, they've got, particular ideas that they would like to approach approach you do you have some sort of program where they can do that and i suppose i don't mean like a dragon den scenario um but is there a way that they can pitch some ideas thoughts do you yeah. have a sort of process a system where anyone anyone within the company if they've got a really good idea and they want to pitch it forward how how, how can they go about that or have you got something already set up no, we don't have something set up across the group. Um, the federated model is really the, the way that that works. So within the copper division or nickel division or alloys division and so on, there's technology champions and there's, there's empowered people to, to run their technology strategy roadmaps and, and their innovation um, practices. Um, and we have, we do have a community of, of practice around, you know, where we hold workshops um, within our group. Um, and we've got the added advantage of having the commercial aspects of expert process solutions, which is part of our nickel division over in, in uh, Sudbury. And then we've got Glencore Technology down in Brisbane, which are commercial outfits of innovative technologies and so on. So. We, we can we can supplement our internal knowledge with that with that knowledge inside a workshop environment um, but day to day I don't think we've got idea generating sort of systems but um, certainly we, we we treasure the engagements that we have with our our frontline staff and our supervisors and our management and they they're empowered to bring these things to to the right sponsors um, either through the workshops and it's a collective sort of thing or and they're quite new um or it will be through the, the divisional pathways through their strategies that way um so it's it i'd say it's not we're not in the infant stages of that but it, it as it as with everything it could get better but um it's 
yeah, it's it's within our divisions already. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Certainly, um, it's not so easy though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to us, it's harder. Nothing, nothing is. Nothing is, and always things need to be worked at. So, yeah. um, from your from your experience working around the world, um, and obviously you've worked in Central and South America, um, North and West Africa, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and and Australia. Um, what are your key learnings that have stayed with you from working in in those different teams in those different cultures? Um, so I guess the 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 key key takeaways I could say from any one of those cultures has been um, the stakeholder engagement piece. So although I, although I didn't actually really work in Russia, I worked in the sort of the former Russian states in in Ukraine and 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 then. Not that it was Russian, but in Bosnia as well after um, after their um, their troubles, um, and I think in any one of those places, whether it's Mexico, Saudi, Bosnia, Ukraine, Algeria, Liberia, it, the the engagement with your workforce, and not just the workforce, but the people that are attached to their workforce, of understanding the motivations as to why they've come to work for you or with you. And something I've always said to myself ever since I started work was that I work for my family. I work with my colleagues, but I always work for my family. And, and I think if you can go into that, into a, 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 any, any culture, like to understand why they do something the way they do it, rather than trying to tell them how to do something the way you think it should be done, um, you tend to get buy-in um, because they, you, 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 you've gone with open ears You've been able to listen to them, but most of the time, if you, and certainly I stuck out like a sore thumb in Mexico, I can tell you, you know, big Welsh ginger man walking around <laughs> the Mexican desert. Um, I certainly was, you know, if if they didn't call me Gringo in the first sentence, by the by the sixth sentence, I was Gringo. Um, but it, you know, but they were they were appreciative to learn once you understood that they had a certain way of doing something and why they were doing it. Um, and give them the opportunity to, to tell you why, even if you didn't speak their language, you know, you could get by. Um, then that for me was a successful engagement in any parts of those worlds. And, it, you know, the maturity levels for mining and all of those areas were different. They were all at different levels. Um, and so the solutions were different or the, the, the way that I would interact with a solution or an idea was different, but, I'd always start the same way. It was always, okay, tell me, tell me why you're doing it and, 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 and why you're here. Why are you coming to work f with us? Um, and that often they hadn't been asked that question. Every time I got to Mexico to a new mine site with a, with a group of guys that were already connected and we'd just taken over the license, they were like, oh, wow, okay. Nobody's asked us that before. It's like, well, <laughs> mm. there's a first time. Just tell us, tell us. What, what you want to get from this engagement because, um, you know, we, we are here to make friends and influence people, but, you know, we, we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing by them, but also for the, for our shareholders and our stakeholders involved and their stakeholders are their families. So, you know, if we, if we know that their activities are going to affect their water, for instance, or something like that, they'll know that. And you don't want to try and put them in a position to, to, to have to make a decision about doing something because we told them to, knowing it's going to affect their, their, their other stakeholders. So 
for me, that's where I found most success, I'd say, in, in those regions. And, and the same goes for governments, you know, working with the Algerian government on, on the business plans for the, for the iron ore mines there. You know, it was a question of, well, why? Why do you still want to be involved in this? What's, what, what is the long-term plan? What is the 10-year outcome that you want? And, and how can we facilitate that? Because the rock is in the ground. You can take it out anywhere you want, but it's got to have a purpose in a sense. Otherwise, what's the point? So that, that certainly was, was equally applicable at, at that level as a board director, as it was, you know, working, working as a mine manager in Mexico. Yeah. Um, how does that culture appreciation uh, reflected in the methods of um, adoption and change management have you seen? Um, <clears throat> well, for me personally, I've always looked at it as being able to say, well, the tech, most of the time, technologies that I've interacted with in mining don't need to really be proven. What you have to prove is that the people can adopt to that technology and focus on them, not the technology piece. You, you don't get into the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of where you're going to store the data. All of that will come. It's, you know, this, either you build a server house or whatever, that they're easy solutions to come across. And people, I, I found in the past, we get really stuck in those deeper conversations about the, the nuts and bolts rather than, well, how is that? Why have we met, decided to make this change? And what are we going to do about executing and not the not the what, it's the why. It's starting with the why, and, and I do refer to Simon Sinek a lot in some of the conversations I have about change management. But it's it's appealing to the to why do you need the change in the first place, not what is the change. And um, it, it's I, there's a, an element that I started researching when I first came into business transformation, which was around the neurology of change. And the, the, there's this thing called neuroelasticity where a, an adult change, changes the way they learn once they get into adulthood, which is roughly around 25 or 26. And Deloitte did a huge study on this in, in, in Africa in, in 2017, I think 2017 or 18. Um, and that, that promoted many more ways of being able to present information about change. Um, and allowing different training methodologies, presenting different types of information, all related to the same innovation, same change management, uh, same technology adoption, but with different change management strategies. So you need, when you get into that process, you need to understand that, that those workforces need to be motivated to learn. So they need to know why they have to learn in the first place, whereas you know, a, a kid or, or a graduate student is still in the process of just wanting to sponge information and education. They don't have a motivation to learn. They've already got it. Um, and that's all because of the, the neurological sort of aspects of, of reaching into that. And so I've personally taken an interest in how that can affect the success of change management processes and the speed of trust. That is the, the fundamental. The speed of trust is, correlates to how quickly the change management can be successful and therefore the return on your investment starts to come through from the execution. Um, so, and trust is an equation, you know, it's, you have to earn it and there's a number of elements to that. Um, and if you focus on those elements, then, then change happens. Um, so it's, you don't have to get into the nitty gritty 
Um, you, well, you can, but you don't have to get into all the document controls about all of the different processes that have to change. That, that does happen. That is an activity that needs to happen, but it's not the reason you do change management. It's the people. Um, and that, that is the fundamentals of why technology will work or not. The technology will work. It's been proven many times before you buy it. it otherwise, it wouldn't be sold most of the time, unless yeah. you're in NASA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it, you know it's the application of that in your workforce is the key moment of value creation not the yeah. decision by the tech yeah so it's it's a people thing um and that's obviously similar to what i'm i'm involved in, in recruitment yeah. it is a people thing um and yeah i, I suppose it's like anything anything whether whether in mining whether you're in another industry um you can have all these things around you that help help move processes and systems forward and help you uh, as a company or as an operation move forward. But at the end of the day, it's people and people interaction and people communication. That is, that is always the diff so simple part of it, but it seems to always be the most difficult part. Fundamentally, like the, the, the biggest resistance to the biggest challenge is the fact that you've got a workforce with free will. Applied intelligence, machine learning is actually relatively easy because the computer hasn't got the, the intuition to work out whether it wants to learn or not. You're just telling it to learn. Yeah. The biggest piece of all of that is stopping somebody having a free will, or not stopping, but, but enhancing their ability to trust what's coming out of those systems to then change the way they, what they behave. And all you're doing, that's what you're trying to do, a bit like you're being a parent, is changing the, the workforce behavior to be either more safe, well, more optimized, which leads to more, more safe, often more productive, um, and, and ultimately more, more efficient for your stakeholders and your shareholders. Um, so all the challenges that I've come across are the business transformation or in operation excellence and everything else is behavioral change and the, the functions of why behaviors are existing the way they are, not really the technology. I, 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 I move forward in the, in the safe knowledge that, that technology is going to do pretty much what it was delivered, what it was said to have done, given the right environments. And those environments are the challenges to, to create. And, and that's, yeah. that's my, my philosophy, really. Yeah. Um, industry uh, collaboration. Um, given the sort of recent announcement on emissions target set in many of the top mining metals companies, um, do you see there a, a collaboration model of organisations like the ICMM and CIM um, as a useful mechanism for future sustainability um, within the industry? I think it's inevitable, to be honest. But um, when, I when I look at, at the experiences I had in the steel group and, and what ArcelorMittal were involved in from a, a steel group manufacturing sort of industry, um, there was a recognized sort of collaboration on, on a number of different, not standards, but, you know, accepted best practice. Um, and I think we're getting there, you know, I think the ICMM has certainly changed over the last three or four years in the way that it's counseling the industry, because it is a council at the end of the day. And, and you know, the, the, the way that that, um, the, the, all of the workflows that they've got going on, the tailings and sustainability workflows, the, the initiatives for cleaner, safer vehicles, um, the diversity and inclusion workflows have 
the collaboration at the core of their model, you know, the, the, the affiliate membership strategy that they've allowed to happen now. Um, and the, the, all of the mining institutions and met, mining and metallurgy institutions like the CIM, like OSIMM, SAIMM, they all have a part to play, right? They've all had a library of technical documentation and guidance and, um, you know, not an exclusive membership, but a, a wealthy, knowledgeable membership that was almost siloed just by geography and, and the International Council, I think, is, is blossoming because of it. We've obviously got a, an industry pressure from, you know, activist funds and financial world and society at large are a bit more connected, a bit more sort of socially engaged now. But the knowledge base of some of that is probably is still a bit weak in, in the role that mining plays in a lot of their ability to even go on Facebook and, and put a message out there about green energy and so on. It's really only driven by the fact that there's copper wire around the world and, and you know, all of that type of stuff. So I'm not saying that we need to educate everybody before they start sprouting stuff because they're, they're open to their own opinion, but there's definitely a case where collaborating as an industry to, to on the fundamentals of sustainability and climate change and our role that we play in it, um, it needs a good structure. And, and we're, we, I'm not saying we need to do more, we just need to keep going. Um, I think we've started the ball successfully rolling. Um, and, you know, we, the GMG sort of organization has, has had a number of, of global engagements that, that are in line with some of the stuff that's happening in the wider institutes. Um, and there's, there's plenty of other smaller groups that are working in that space. So, yeah, I think it's inevitable, but traditionally, when I first started, there was much more competition in terms of the way that mining companies compared themselves to their peers with a competitive edge rather than with a, a collective, I keep saying brotherhood, but, you know, that, that, that sort of collective uh, mindset as an industry to move forward. And it, it did first start when the ICMM first started and whenever it was the late seventies, I think it was, you know, um, it was collectively there for many other reasons, but I think it, we, it, as, as different cycles have impacted different parts of the industry, it, there was a competitive edge that came about. And I think we, we're coming back into a more collaborative place. Um, so we just need to do, keep going rather than do more we, we're on the right path yeah um so you're an active uh, csm uh, lumini member campbell school mines um and your experience obviously in the industry around technology what do you see the the main issues for recruitment of graduates um to service uh, the industry for the future uh is this a, a real passion of mine and a, and a problem as well. I, I think the traditional skill sets that we refer to as being part of our degree courses of the past are still required. We still have to have an appreciation for, you know, what, what are the thermodynamics and, and fluid mechanics of, of mineral extraction and the geochemistry and the geometallurgy pieces. And there are certainly elements of all of those things that are theory-based that you, you kind of have to learn. I just think you could probably do that in the industry as an applied 
an applied process rather than an institutional academic um, trajectory. Um, and so in order for the mining world, I think to get the future workforce, we, I think we need to look at data management skill sets being augmented with on the job uh, enrichment of the of the technical skills that we that we also need. So, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, you know, all of those sort of related disciplines should be uh, focused and highlighted in in the way that the industry talks about the the future workforce and appealing to those people that are those 16, 17, 18 year olds that are looking at those trajectories, thinking of going into pharmaceuticals or, you know, something yeah. that's a little bit more worldly, let's say, or, or yeah. not known. And we, I, I think we, we sometimes look upon our mining industry and we call upon the next generation of people already in the mining industry to be the next workforce. And that's, I don't think that's sustainable either. No. And we, all we seem to do is talk about our problems with other mining people. Well, we should be talking to the people that are going to come into the mining industry and, and how do we f identify those? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we were speaking about this the other night um, mm. and whether, whether it's mining companies bringing people through their businesses, maybe through an apprenticeship type yeah. um, scheme, whether the government does get involved as well and unlike yeah. especially like here in the uk there used to be a lot of trade sort of apprenticeships um i know say from when when um, when i was that sort of age I, me personally didn't i actually went to university but a lot of my friends went and done trades and done an apprenticeship where they would work um in industry for three four days a week and a day doing academia um so there, there should be, there should be, there's no, there's no alternative for mining companies or the mining industry for that, for that kind of scenario. It's well, if you, if you, if you're going to be, if you're going to be technical, you have to go to university, learn it, and then go into industry as such. I think that was the, and it wasn't the traditional way in some ways. Certainly, in Camborne School of Mines versus, say, University of Leeds or RSM some of the other institutes we were really lucky you know we had a test mine and we had an active mine in south crofty literally on our doorstep and so um most of us sorry about that rob that's um, right most of us were um not that i was lucky enough to do that um but most of us were able to um to get into that world um alongside our, our academia so we could go to the test mine you know we could go to the um well not in my day actually we only had the test mine we couldn't go to south crofty but you know um that was possible um other institutes didn't have that capability um in australia i think they did have that and and some of the areas in canada and so on south africa too so the conventionally that that was kind of in existence but it, it, it's I don't know what happened, but certainly in my generation for the last almost 20 years, there's been this penchant, let's say, for having degree qualified people coming in on a technical basis. Well, 
there's elements of what they've achieved at degree level, but actually they could they could probably get better, more value from their employees with with people on the ground. Yeah, I mean, do you obviously being in the the area that you're involved in? Do you think mining companies should, instead of taking people from the universities, should be going to the schools? So when they leave at 16 and 18, before they go to university, get them from there and say, look, come and come and join us. Come and join our organization. We'll show you around all the different departments um, and you can, you've got certain skills. We'll show you everything. You've got certain skills and we'll develop you over a period of a few years. And at the end, you're going to have a certain skill set and you will then either be a geologist, mine engineer, maintenance, head office, whatever way. But it's, it's getting them from the schools as opposed to getting them from the universities. For sure. is, is mining companies thinking that way? Are they doing anything like that way? Are they opposed to it? What, what, what would you say your, your thoughts are around it? Look, I can't speak for Glencore overall because as i mentioned is the, the federated model is is different so the different interactions of the geographies of where we operate we have different relationships we've got relationships in in queensland uh, that are different to our relationship with mcgill and in, in, or montreal um i and we have a schools outreach program in certain parts of, of the world as well um so yeah, Glencore has a, a multifaceted strategy depending on the geographies we're in in that space. And that's probably true of a lot of the big miners. Um, but I, my personal opinion would be that, that yeah, you, you, need, you need to have a structured global, or not global, but certainly a local strategy for school outreach and, and um, incorporation into your stakeholder map, the, the local schools, the, even the national schools in the regions or the countries you're working in. Um, as long as your, your mining portfolio has got, you know, 10 to 15 year life in any one of your assets, you should be speaking to 14 year olds because when they're 24, they're either coming in to help you close or to expand or to move the asset into a new, you know, old body or field. So, and they're local, you know, 90% of people that I know um, who aren't in mining haven't moved more than about 300 miles away from where they were born to work. Um, and I don't see why that would be any different in the vast workforce of the, of the mining world. So the strategies for that needs to be far reaching and we need to be, have a longer horizon than we currently do um, on, on the way that, that we strategize for our business's future. Yeah. We spend a lot of time looking at five-year plans and less, but it doesn't include our workforce most of the time. Yeah. In the perfect world, how what would you like to see the industry doing? Well, I take it the industry will lead it. Um, obviously, government can get involved. Um, yeah. How would you like the, in a, like I said, in a perfect world, how would you get more people into the industry, no matter what subjects they're studying, in a perfect world, how how would you would, how would you envisage that if everything was possible? I would like centers of excellence to be industry sponsored, with 
certain themes attached to those centers of excellence. You might have a, a sustainability and climate change technology center of excellence versus a metallurgy and, and um, geo data science center of excellence. And they could be global, but connected through the mining companies that are, are already globally connected through the International Council or just because they are multinational companies. Um, so industry driven connected with the right themes that are open to school groups being shown all of the different sort of elements of uh, working in a, in a mining site or a mining application. Um, but also the, the, you know, the, the ability to envisage how, so let, one of the things that, I, that is a bit out there and a bit left field, but something that I came across early on when I became a, a dad was the digital literacy of children these days is part of where they're, they're getting their world knowledge from. And, and, you know, one of the biggest selling games in the world at the moment is Minecraft. My kids play that. Yeah. Well, I went to a school for my nieces to give a talk about the rocks, the, the, the rocks around us. And within about 10 minutes of talking about, you know, everybody's did their teeth this morning as interactive with rocks. Everybody's got a, a zip on their jacket. Well, they all came from rocks. And they all said, oh, that's how Minecraft works. And in Minecraft, they have these little pixels in the, in the, in the, in the hills of the, the open platform that tells you what's in there, iron and coal and, and whatever, your copper and stuff. But they don't have the link to say, well, how does that become suddenly a sword or, a, or something to build with inside that digital scape? Um, but they're, they're connected. They're connected to the natural world just through that. Um, and they see things around them. And, and they, you know, Lego is a great example of, you know, how you can be interacting with, with models of equipment and other things. Um, so, you know, why aren't mining companies or international council trying to sponsor the Lego company to make, you know, a whole, all of those types of I'm different I was just things. about to say that. I was just about to say Minecraft. Why don't some of the big mining companies advertise Minecraft? And well, then people may get that connection. And, and parents will get it then, as well as the children. And, and that half the battle is getting the parents to keep talking about it at, at home so that they, they, they stay connected, they stay engaged, and then they think about that when they come to make applications for uni or when they're gonna decide what subjects they wanna do at advanced level, whatever it is, high school diploma, whatever they are in the world. So there's an element of strategy on the kids, but also on keeping the parents understanding why mining's important and what it, what it does for their day and what it does for the kids' day. Because every child now, like my two, he can't even, he's not even two and he knows he, he can say the word phone, but he can't say the word puppy yet. And he, can, he can open my, my, my iPhone and move the icons around. Um, so every single one of those kids now that are 14, 16, 18, are more engaged in a digital space on, with data than I ever was. And they know they want real-time activity. They want real-time information. And that is what the mining companies are starting to want. They want real decision makers to act, to stop something happening before it happens inside a shift. Yeah, well, but I don't, and I don't think those children, those teenagers would necessarily think that kind of technology is prevalent in 
mining. They okay. wouldn't probably make the they wouldn't make the connection. Well, they don't. They, they would just they would just think it's you, you go out to a mine, you get dirty, <laughs> big coal, uh, <laughs> black coal faces, and and uh, and that's, that's it. it. That's that's probably their impression. So again, it's a branding image around around the whole is, around the whole industry. It, it, and it is a bit of an education in the sense of them yeah. saying, well, how much gold is in an iPhone? How much silver is in an iPhone? How much copper is in an iPhone? Um, how much copper is in an Xbox? All of that sort of stuff we don't talk about. We talk about how much copper is in an electric vehicle and, and all that. Well, most of the kids that you want into the workforce don't care about an electric vehicle yet. Some of their parents probably do. Um, but they're already, if they're already looking at electric vehicle, they, have a, they already have some sort of cognitive sentiment to make a change for whatever reason, climate change or efficient or economics, although some of that I think is flawed anyway, if you're going down an economic route for an electric vehicle. But anyway, it's my personal opinion. Yeah. But, so so you, you're already trying to pitch something to a conversion, to somebody who's converted, whereas the, the workforce of the future is 15, 16 years old right now. They couldn't give two hoots about an electric vehicle, in my view, most of them. Yeah. But they do know what it what it takes to have an Xbox and how much that costs and how the disc works inside it. If they're still playing with C discs, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not that connected. <laughs> I know a lot of games are now on the cloud. So, but how does the cloud work? And why aren't we telling them? Well, the only reason you can play Amazon Stadia, whatever it's called, is because of a global network of interfacing that is basically coming from motherboards and copper and all this other stuff. Mm. And if, if you can't recycle it, which we haven't got enough to recycle anyway, you have to mine it. Yeah. So yeah. those are the stories I feel we, we don't we don't tell enough of yeah. as an industry. And, 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 and the school outreach programs worldwide could probably do that, not necessarily influencing their curriculums. We don't want to get that deep into the into it, I don't think, but we could do strategic days and strategic training days to, for the teachers as much as for the kids uh, through the centers of excellence that we could build as an industry in the, in the different topics. Um, and if we got enough of the major mining companies to commit you know, a certain amount of funding over five years for the center of excellence to, to pop up, and don't get me wrong, there are some happening. You know, There's one in Wazim, I saw another one in Vancouver and another one in Canada. There's a few in Pretoria connected to the university there. So the, the, the trajectory is starting to, to, to bring this to the fore, but it's, for me, the storyline is much more around understanding what the day-to-day -day workforce of the future is doing now and bringing mining into that day-to-day -day application. So yeah. digital literacy, gaming, the clothes they wear, or the metal fastenings on the clothes, or however we are connected to fashion and style and music, all of those things could be talked about in a mining context, but we haven't put yeah. enough effort into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up. I've got one more question. Um, working obviously in the, the digital and trans, uh, transformation um, area, mm. how do you see the future of that within mining? Mm. Or what is the future outlook? Well, autonomy is around the corner, but it's been around the corner for a little while. But I think, um, you know, emissions is a hot topic. Managing our energy usage is part of that. Um, and the decisions that we make as human actors in an operating space sometimes means that we over, we over, we over, 
uh, used or overutilized some of the energies that we've got available to us, um, certainly for power and, and other things. So optimizing our energy use through <clears throat> computer-aided decision-making is is, in, is basically inevitable. It's We're at the forefront of it, but I think there'll be a much bigger emphasis going forward into the next 10 to 15 years at some of, at some of the achievements to get to our scope one, two, and three targets um, from a Glencoe perspective. I mean, we just came out with that just in December and, and you know, a big chunk of that is related to our coal asset um, strategy. But there is, a, you know, there's some fundamentals on our scope one and the two um, emissions management, which, which will relate to optimizing our process controls um, and the application of, of semi-autonomous or computer-aided decision-making for either usage of latent capacities of which we, we know we still have. We've been a bit complacent as an industry around mm -hmm. what we, we've over-engineered some of the, our, our need for energy and stuff. Um, and, and so we misplace some of where we put that. You know, we've got, we might have huge gen sets available for redundancy for the mill drives or filter pressing or pumping or whatever. Um, but I think we could, if we could have the smarts to redeploy some of that energy, then overall we'd start to get a reduction in our in our scope uh, scope two or scope one emissions. So I think computer aided decision making and, and, and autonomy in that or autonomous process uh, control in that space is the, the the world is turning in that way already. But I think there'll be an, an uptick in that and getting your skill sets aligns to those topics as a as a, a graduate or a university prospective person now um it would be i think a a, a good foundation for any cv that you're going to be looking at as a graduate um i think the world in mining in the underground space is still deeper you know there's a new call for nickel and a new call for copper, a new call for cobalt, um, manganese, lots of those those battery mineral or battery metals um, require a different method of extraction, a certainly a depth. Safe Deep Development is, um, is an initiative in the Canadian Mining Innovation Council at the moment that Glencore are involved in, um, which is looking at, at some, some alternative ways to mine at depth which involves robotics, involves um, autonomous, involves changing the mining cycle, perhaps in some ways, you know, removing the batch process, trying to get continuous. If you look at what cold is over the last sort of 15, 20, almost, well, if you go back that far, 30 years, to get to a continuous process of mining, the cutting piece was, was one of the pieces, but the main uptake that we that certainly the guys in our coal division saw was the ability to keep moving rock continuously so continuous haulage systems um and the ability to support that which often means that it's some sort of cutting wheel or some sort of cutting process so that you don't have to do the drill and the blast and the support and the meshing and um that sort of back cycle so i i, I think that will come around the corner it, it could be 15 20 years out before that's a, an established activity and it won't get rid of all drill and blast for sure. You still need all your nooks and all your intersections and your, your right-hand drives and other stuff 
um, for the mine infrastructure in an underground space to kind of happen. And you can't, you can't really do that with cutting. But I think that that's a place where there'll be a significant step change in some of the way that we operate our minds or develop our minds. But operating, I think, will be real-time real time decision-making um, for productivity gains and safety as a result of that. And um, yeah, I mean, in geometallurgy and, and the geochemistry and, and metallurgical space, I think the, 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 the use of data to help optimize their process control is, is part of the fundamental technology roadmaps that we've got in certainly in some of our divisions in Glencore um, was, was a heavy topic that we talked about in the last workshop for our best practices as well. So I'd say those are the burn, not burning platforms, but the, certainly the, the trends and trajectory and th topics and themes. Uh, and then all of that relates back to sustainability, that all of those things will influence our footprint of tailings, our footprint of carbon, our footprint of water. Um, they'll all have a direct resulting impact, a positive impact from being more efficient and being more real-time proactive. And, and that's to be the, the sort of bit that is missing in some of the rhetoric around the industry of, well, we've got to focus on tailings management, we've got to focus on you know, emissions management, well, or safety. And, and don't get me wrong, they're all got extreme value to a business, but the, some, of the, some of the main sort of value statements have got to be around the more productive, the more, up, the more efficient you are in the decisions that you make, um, the resulting factor will be you're more efficient with your energy, you're more efficient or producing less waste and you're, you're putting less people in danger by being efficient and complying to the, the reasons why you, you are there. You, you, you know, the, the reasons you're in a mine, the, the process that you have to follow there is, is set out. If you cut the corner because of something, understand why, not chastise them for doing it, but understand why they chose to do that and change that. The failure mode analysis is is key to, to most of that, um, and that will that will remain. The failure modes will drive what technologies we need. It'll drive what efficiencies we chase, and it'll drive the, the future trends. Whether we need continuous mining or not, will be down to how many failures or how many lost time events do we have in the batch process. Yeah, Owen, it's great talking to you. Um, certainly provided a lot of content around. The the digital and transformation space. Um, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they've got any questions um, or want to follow some of the work that you're going to be doing in the future? Um, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure most of my link contact information is up to date. Um, so feel free to reach out through, through my LinkedIn page. Um, that's, that's probably the best place, actually. Um, my my work with Glencore will be governed by um, the, the the publicity of what we what we are doing um, through through the corporate channels. So I can't control any of that, I'm afraid. Yeah. But um, certainly there is um, there's more and more stuff coming out from the Glencore channel in, in terms of the statements that we make in, in on our LinkedIn and Twitter and other things. I'm not on Twitter, yeah. but um, yeah. So mostly through LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. No worries. Um, I um, hope the audience have uh, enjoyed listening to this. I certainly have. Um, and please share share this episode amongst your friends and family, etc. I think people outside of the mining industry may um, 
may be interested in this pod, uh, this particular episode as well because it's not just necessarily mining focused as to the technical technical around mining. Um, it's people may understand what mining is by perhaps just listening to this episode. So I appreciate if you can just share it amongst your friends, family, anyone that may be of a, that may want to hear hear um, a different view around mining. Um, that'd be appreciated. So um, until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.